listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be with you. It's a treat. We've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Thank you, Adam and the team for leading us. Um, I know what you're thinking, and I agree. I wish Mark was here too, but he's not. And so I get to be with you. Mark and I have uh, agreed to, to swap pulpits this morning for a couple reasons, uh, so that you guys can understand what the downtown campus has to deal with on a week-by-week basis, but also so that the downtown campus can also actually get a little Mark Kirkendall, because everybody needs some Mark Kirkendall from time to time. I want to say to you that I love your pastor. And I love Clint. Here's what I know about those guys. If something happens at all on this campus, if anything at all happens on this campus, that means Mark has already thought about it for about two months, and he's called Clint in about seven meetings for it. Those guys are administrative beasts, and they hold the rest of us to a high standard. They literally do make us better. So you are tremendously blessed by God to have a couple guys like Mark and Clint who are leading you, loving you, guiding you, and guarding you. I count Mark and Clint as very close friends, and I'm thankful that uh, the campus that I bring greetings from downtown is getting to spend some time with Mark this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue in our campus-wide All Bethel Sermon Series on the attributes of God. And I get to lead us through, as Adam's already said, through Isaiah chapter 6. So I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bible or device or whatever you have, or if you can find someone who has a Bible that's a little slower than you and not paying attention, take their Bible. I don't care. I'd love for you to see the text. I'm going to read all of Isaiah chapter 6, and then we're going to unpack the passage a good bit. We'll see if we can apply it, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us. So this is Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest, their, uh, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? 
And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is God's word. There are times, there are seasons in life when our thinking gets expanded, elongated, and deepened. Most of the time, most of us build environments and contexts in which we're pretty much in control, which we experience, see, hear, and feel just what we want to see, experience, hear, and feel. But every now and then, God intervenes and he strips away all of the distractions that we have imposed so that we can see more clearly, so that we can feel more deeply. I've lived in the eastern part of Texas now for 25 years, but I'm still originally from the Texas panhandle. And in the Texas panhandle, we have no vegetation. There's literally nothing growing up there. It's like the surface of the moon if the moon was angry. We only got electricity up there about 12 years ago. It's true. And so at nighttime, you, you can't see this. It is, it is dark. But what you can see as a result are stars that go on for billions and billions of light years. It's incredible. Just the, the sky comes alive. I'm still not really used to being in the eastern part of Texas where there's all of these, oh, what do you call them? Trees everywhere, and they sort of seem to block out the sky, and there's lights everywhere, and you really can't see as far. Sometimes that stuff has to get stripped away so that you can see properly, and sometimes that even happens to us in our lives. I know that many of you have gone through some significant seasons of suffering, and sometimes those are, are very harsh and painful, and we wish it would just go away, but sometimes, by grace, God uses those to really grab our attention. About two and a half years ago, some of you know, I had the opportunity for an uh, elongated, extended stay in the hospital. I had a pretty massive heart attack, and at first, uh, we didn't know what was going on. It was just really, really painful, and they said, well, you know, something's going on. We don't know what it is, and then they took another reading, and they said, my goodness, you're shutting down. We've, we've got to take action, and as it increased, and I began to sort of drift in and out, I remember having a couple thoughts. One thought was, this is going to be so cool. I'm actually going to see Jesus. I did. I thought this, but I also thought, my goodness, I I might not ever see my two sons again. I might not see my wife again. How is how is that going to be? And for the first time, it was December of 2016. For the first time, that entire fall semester, I didn't care at all that the Cowboys didn't make the playoffs again. Couldn't have cared less. That was the, like my most immediate frustration that they were throwing it and blowing it again. But in that moment, as I rode in an ambulance, sort of kind of coming in and out of consciousness, I didn't care. I find that I pray most often, most frequently, that the Lord will bless me with seasons of plenty and prosperity, precisely the seasons when I'm not thinking about Him at all. So I shouldn't be surprised when by grace, sometimes God brings seasons of strain and suffering and severity so that... I will think rightly and feel deeply 
about my God. See, that's the whole reason we're doing this series on the attributes of God, to introduce every single one of us to a picture of God so that we will think ever increasingly rightly about God, we'll feel ever increasingly deeply about God, because that matters massively about us. A.W. Tozer has rightly said, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Not where we live, not where we drive, what we drive, not how we vote, not how we smell, not what we eat or don't eat. The most important thing about you as a human being is what comes into your mind when you think about God that presupposes and presumes that you think about God and not just when you need something. What do you think about when you think about God? Well, this morning, my hope, my prayer, my preparation, my expectation is that all of us, having come into proximity with this passage, will walk out with a little bit different thinking about our God, with a little bit deeper feeling about our God. And the attribute I really want to spend some time on has to do with God's holiness, which is our big idea. It is that God is holy. I want to spend a little bit of time on this, so I'm going to start back at the beginning, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died. So right off the bat, we have to have some, some setting, some understanding. In the year that King Uzziah died, there's a whole lot going on here, so I need to sort of set the historical context and the backstory for you. This is about 740 BC, and things are really bad. King Solomon has died about 150 years earlier, and the nation has been divided. The kingdom is split in half. There are 10 tribes to the north. There are two tribes in the south. And there is wickedness. There is immorality. There is pagan idolatry. What's worse is the people are beginning to oppress the people themselves. They're beginning to use the institutions of government and even religion to oppress and to oppose one another. They're devouring one another. And so for the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah... For the first five chapters, God is pronouncing judgment against them. You are vile against one another. You are violent against one another. You are oppressing one another. You are, you are taking advantage of one another socially, governmentally, religiously. But I am a holy God, and I will act against this. For five chapters, woe to you, Israel. Woe to you, Judea, because you think me too small. You think me too disinterested. You think me not trustworthy. You think me not paying attention. You think me too weak. And because you think of me this way, you are beginning to treat one another in a very bad way. Please do not miss that connection. Because you think wrongly about me, it is beginning to translate into how you are treating one another. And I am a holy God. I will not tolerate that. Which is why God will say some strange things like, make sure you pay your your workers, they're just wages. I am a holy God. Well, just about a payroll issue? Oh, no, no, no. Because God takes very seriously when people take advantage of other people. He is a holy God. And when we think wrongly about God, we treat one another poorly. So Isaiah tells us in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah, what's going on here? Well, the nation has gone from very bad to very worse. The nation has descended into immorality, to wickedness, to idolatry. What's worse is the Assyrian Empire. They're the superpower to the north. They have begun to come south and afflict and oppress and invade Israel. In fact, God tells us that he is the one who raises up the Assyrians to judge Israel. And then he judges the Assyrians for the way that they do it. That's sovereignty. 
In about 15 years from this moment, the Assyrians will completely wipe out the northern tribes. The 10 northern tribes will be obliterated. They'll be carried off in exile to the north, never ever to be reconstituted again. But at least there's one bright spot in the midst of all of this mess, of all this wickedness, all of this idolatry, at least we've got the king, Uzziah. He's one of the very few kings in the Old Testament that God says was good. There are no kings in the north that are ever called good, and there's only a few from the south that are ever called good, but Uzziah is one of those guys. At the age of 16, he is crowned king. Some of you in here might be 16, and the thought of you ruling our nation scares me to the marrow. But this guy is crowned king at the age of 16, and he rules for 52 years. He dies at the age of 68. That's astonishing. The average life expectancy in the middle of the 8th century BC is 38 years old. Some of you would have lived two lifetimes. Most people died by 38 because life was hard back then. This guy lives till 68 years old, and he would have lived longer after a 52-year reign had his life not ended in moral collapse. We read about this in 2 Chronicles 26. You can look there if you'd like or read it later. I encourage you to do so. Here's the story. The Assyrians begin to press in from the north, and King Uzziah says, hey, we've got to do something. God hasn't acted. I guess I will. And so King Uzziah goes into the temple, and he burns incense. That's a mistake. Only the priest can burn incense. Now, David 250 years earlier in Psalm 110 said that one day a priest king would come who would sit in the temple. But Uzziah, you're not that guy. And so 80 priests confront Uzziah in the temple and they say, oh king, it is not for you to burn incense. You are not a priest. And rather than King Uzziah saying, you know what? My bad. Got a little crazy there. I'm so sorry. I apologize. I repent. Let's get out of here. Let's go have pancakes. He doesn't do that. His anger and his rage burns unrepentantly. He's trying to force God to act. By the way, never a good idea to try to force God to act on your behalf. And so God strikes him with leprosy right then and there because there's only one priest king who can rule in the temple, and Uzziah, you are not he. He'll come another 740 years later. Uzziah gets leprosy, and so he is cast out from the community. He has to be banished and ostracized. He loses his rule. He loses his reign. He loses his his community. He can no longer worship with the people. He is unclean, and he dies. So in the midst of all this wickedness, all of this idolatry, all of this suffering and oppression, at least we have one good guy, Uzziah, but now he's dead too. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king. Now, Isaiah is being subtle here, but he doesn't want us to miss it. He says, I saw the Lord. That's Adonai in Hebrew. It's not Yahweh. In the year that the king died, I saw the king. In other words, the king that we thought was a good guy, well, he's dead because all kings die, all presidents die, all governors die, all potentates die, all tyrants die. But I saw the deathless, infinite king as he truly is. It's in the midst of this crisis and this suffering and this season of question that Isaiah is able to, for the first time in a long time, see things as they truly are. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. That's interesting. The king, Uzziah, was not permitted to enter the temple, but Isaiah sees a king seated on a throne in the temple. 
That's interesting. Not only is he by a throne, he is seated on a throne. You see, the priest was never allowed to sit down in the temple, ever, for starters, because there's no chair. Hard to sit down when there's no chair in the temple. Why is there no chair? Because the work of the high priest is never finished. He is always, ever interceding on behalf of the people. But this priest king, this God, this being that Isaiah sees, is seated on a throne in the temple. The temple is a place of worship. It's not a palace, but things have changed. Not only that, but this priest king is seated at the front of the temple. The, the temple has changed. There's no longer a dividing wall. Usually there's the holy place, which has the lampstand and the table of showbread and the altar of incense. And then there's the curtain. And then there's the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. But that's been changed. What Isaiah sees is the dividing wall has been removed and God has moved, as it were, to front of house. And he's moved his throne up front to be on full display. He's not dwelling way back on the Ark of the Covenant. He has moved to the front of the house. That's very interesting. And he is seated for all the world to see. He is high. He is lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Iffy translation there. It's not the train of his robe. Ancient Near Eastern monarchs back in those days did not wear trains on the robes like a bridal gown. That comes much later. This is simply the hem of his garment. His his kingly robe. It's just the hem and it fills the temple. In other words, Isaiah is face down on the ground, straining his eyes to look up and all he can see is the hem of this garment and that hem of the garment fills the entire temple, the largest building in existence at the time of Isaiah. In other words, God is big. True. He's bigger than you think. See, they had begun to think in Isaiah's chapter 1 through 5 that God was small, that he just dwelled between the cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that he was portable, he was tame, he was user-friendly. You could take him wherever you needed to go. But Isaiah says, oh no, just the hem of his robe fills the whole temple. This God is big. He is enormous. He is not portable. He is not user-friendly. He is God. And this, the hem of his robe fills the temple. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Your Bible probably translates that seraphim because there's no English translation for that. It's a Hebrew word. It means the burning ones. Only other place we'll find this word seraph is in Numbers chapter 21 when it says that the children of Israel were being bitten by fiery serpents called seraph, burning fiery serpents. You'll not find seraphim described any place else in the Bible. This is the only place they show, they show up. They're a little bit shy. They don't show up anyplace else. We don't know a whole lot about them. They are thought to be because of the name burning, that they might be serpent-like. They might be fiery because of that word. We don't know, but they're awesome beings. Just their voices shake the entire earth. What we know is that they have six wings. It says, they stood, there stood seraphim. Each had six wings with two. Each covered his face to... to sort of not look at the glory and the holiness of God. These are beings who are sinless, who are perfect, who have never experienced error or sin or corruption in any way. And yet not even they, these awesome sinless beings, can bring themselves to look directly on the presence of this priest king God sitting before them. With two, they covered their feet. More than likely, that is an expression means they covered their whole bodies as an expression of humility. They do not want to be vulnerable and exposed to this awesome, holy, great big God. And with two, they flew to demonstrate the speed with which they carry out their service. 
Verse 3, and one called to another and said. So here's what we know about these seraphim. They only show up in Isaiah 6. They have six wings, and they apparently speak Hebrew. That's pretty cool. And they may be fiery, serpent-looking dudes. We don't know for sure, but they know one song, and the song goes like this. They call to one another, and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they keep saying it over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Kadosh, 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 Yahweh Tsevaot. They say it again and again and again. Because it's new information? Because they don't know this? No, 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 no. Because that's what worship is. Regularly and rightly recognizing your God. Saying that which is true about Him because a right view of God actually transforms you. And so you beginning to say, he is holy, he's big, he's other. That actually begins to change my mindset and my daily actions. That's worship. We'll circle back to that later. They're not telling God things that he doesn't know either. He knows these things. They are simply saying he is holy, holy, holy. Is Yahweh Tsevaot, meaning Yahweh, God of the armies of heaven, or God Almighty. We have our translation here says of hosts, but he is in command of all of the beings of the cosmos. And Isaiah sees this, and he's blown away. They say the whole earth is full of his glory. That's not praise. That is a stinging rebuke of Isaiah. It is a stinging rebuke of humanity. For five chapters, we are told, you're not thinking rightly about God. You're not thinking bigly enough about God. So let me remind you, these seraphim say, the entire cosmos is full of his glory. There is nowhere you can look where you do not see the glory of God. The fact that you have descended into this pit of depravity is because you are refusing, you are rejecting to think regularly and rightly about God. And as a consequence, your actions have imploded. These first four verses, if you want to outline Isaiah chapter 6, is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. But what is holy? Of all of the attributes of God, this is the only attribute that is repeated three times. This is a Hebrew superlative. It's it's the Hebrew writer's way of underlining bold, italics, uh, smiley face emoji. This is as much as you can possibly emphasize it. God is holy, holy, holy. Holy. While it is true that God is love, you will never find God is love, love, love. While it is true that God is a jealous God, you will never find God is jealous, jealous, jealous. So what is holy? Believe me and trust me when I say I have been reading on this and researching this for months now. And here is the conclusion to which I have come. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. The best we can come up with is that holy is the adjective for God himself. People have said, well, that word kadosh in Hebrew, it it used to mean separate or cut off or different. And that's true. It did many hundreds of years before Isaiah's time. But by the time Isaiah is on the scene, the word means something different. And besides, are the seraphim flying around the head of God saying, separate, separate, separate? No, because he's not separate. He has moved to the front of house. He is on display for all of the world to see. People have said, well, holy just means moral or pure. Really? So the seraphim are flying around the head of God saying, moral, 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 he's really good. 
No, clearly there's more in view there. What's going on? What does this word mean? Well, we have to understand that Isaiah is recording everything that he's seeing, that he's hearing, that he's feeling and experiencing. All of those things together help us to understand what holy means. He's seeing this. He's feeling this. He's hearing this. God is holy, holy, holy. What does holy mean? Here's my definition. Are you ready to write this down? Because it's brilliant. Holy is gaudy. No, not G-A-W-D-Y. That's, no, no, no. Gaudy. G-O-D-D-Y. Holy is gaudy. It's what God is like. In all of the ways that Isaiah sees him and he hears this, that's what God is like. He is holy. Now, what we have to understand is that Isaiah chapter 6, this is, this is brilliant. Isaiah chapter 6 comes right after Isaiah chapter 5. True. I looked it up. Every Bible I have, it's true. Six comes right after five. And in chapter five, we get the context clue to help us understand what holy means. In chapter five, God denounces the kingdom of Judea. He says, you are oppressing your own people. You are wicked and violent against yourselves, but I am holy and I will act in judgment against that. In other words... God is holy, holy, holy. Means he is devoted, he is committed, he is consecrated, and he will never be distracted nor hindered from being God in those circumstances. Hmm? He's moved to the front of the house. He's not just good and moral and pure and different. He is active. He is moving forward in godness to address sin, wickedness, idolatry, and a wrong, errant thinking about God. His holiness is his godness moving forward. It's been said that his holiness is his glory concealed. His glory is his holiness revealed. Holy is God moving forward. It is his godness. I am devoted. I am committed. I am consecrated to going forth in my godness. I'm holy, holy, holy holy, which helps us to understand why we can see things like in the book of Leviticus that the shovel at the altar is called holy. It's just a shovel. Its job is to move ash, but it's holy. Why? Because it is fully used for God and fully committed, devoted, and consecrated to God's use, which is why when the scriptures tell us, be holy because I am holy, but I can't be separate and cut off. I can't be pure and and completely moral. No, but I can be fully committed, devoted, and consecrated to God's use. Oh, what's that expression? What's that expression? God says it uh, in the Bible. Jesus says it. Oh, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's being holy. Being devoted, committed, consecrated to God's use. That is holiness. So these first four verses, what we've seen is the holiness of God. The whole house was filled with with smoke. Verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. That's the same word as what we see in Exodus, as the children of Israel are wandering through the wilderness, and the pillar of cloud and smoke leads them. It's that smoke. This is the presence of God himself in the temple that Isaiah is coming to grips with this vision. That's the holiness of God, which leads us then to verse 5. We're going to see the humility of the servant. From the holiness of God to the humility of the servant. We have to have this progression. Verse 5. And I said, woe is me. 
This is Isaiah's first response. Woe is me. I want to remind you, for five chapters, Isaiah has been walking around the southern kingdom saying, Woe to you! Woe to you! Woe to you for all of this sin, all of this error, all of this wickedness, all of this idolatry. Woe to you! And then Isaiah sees God and he says, Woe is me. This is a curse he's pronouncing down upon himself. Woe to you means may you be not born, may you be dead, may you cease to exist. And Isaiah sees God and he says, woe to me. Why? For I am lost. That's a nice translation. I am ruined. I am undone. I am coming apart at the atomic level. I am what the U.S. military calls experiencing rapid disassembly. I am coming to pieces because I have seen God. I am lost. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For five chapters, Isaiah has been pronouncing the sin at God's direction of all these other people. But then he sees God and the first thing he does is admit and confess his own sin. This is Isaiah. We're pretty sure he is the nephew to King Uzziah. In other words, Isaiah's father was brother to the king. This is a man of nobility, probably a very good and moral and decent person. And the first thing he says is, woe is me, I'm ruined. I don't know if many of you will remember this, but in nine, at 9-11, about 18 years ago, when the Twin Towers fell, that horrible tragedy, two very prominent American pastors and preachers stood up and said that the reason the towers fell and that so many thousand people lost their lives was because of the rise of homosexuality, abortion, and sexual sin in our nation, that we were under God's judgment. You can imagine how well that was received in the national media. Now, were they wrong or were they right? Well, they were partly right, which meant they were entirely wrong. There's no question, the Bible makes it plain that God does judge nations in the near term through catastrophe and calamity, that God speaks through war. We don't like that, but it's truth. And that God judges ultimately at the end of the age. But the problem was these two guys had to later apologize about a week and a half later and made matters much, much worse because they called out the specific sin of specific people of somebody else. And they were distinctly not like Isaiah. Isaiah sees God and the first thing he does is says, woe is me. When you find people are calling out the sin of everybody else, there's a very good chance that they have not thought rightly about God themselves. Hmm? But Isaiah sees God and the first thing he says is, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why does he say this? Because my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Let me remind you, Isaiah says, he is Yahweh, Tsevaot, the commander of the armies of heaven, and I've seen him, I'm done. And now may I please present to you the gospel according to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. Circle, circle, circle. Here's the gospel, 739 years before the coming of Christ. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me. Please don't miss this. Isaiah, seeing a holy, glorious, righteous, mighty, all-powerful God, says, I'm undone, I am sinful, and all he does is confess his sin. And immediately, God dispatches salvation. Isaiah does not ask, oh, please save me, oh, please help, oh, please rescue me. Isaiah, all he says is, I am undone, 
you are holy, I am not. And immediately one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. This is a burning, alt, a burning coal from the altar of sacrifice, not the altar of incense. Incense doesn't create coals. This is from the altar of sacrifice, meaning something innocent died to pay for the guilt of something else. Something innocent shed its blood and died so that something guilty could live. And this thing is so hot that not even one of these massive flaming serpent-like beings with six wings can touch it with his bare hands, picks it up with tongs, and brings it to Isaiah. Now, I just want you to see this happening in your, in your mind, maybe in your nightmares, I don't know, but I want you to see this. You've just seen the vision of God, you've just confessed sin, and this being dispatches this whatever dragon-like flaming six-winged Hebrew-speaking serpent thing, and he's coming at you with fire. Do you think this is going to end well for you when you've just admitted your guilt? <laughs> no, this is going to be a very short Thursday, Okay. But watch what happens. He had in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar of sacrifice, and he touched my mouth and said, oh, we're going to get narration here. Listen to what he says. I actually kind of find this amusing. Behold, this has touched your lips. As if Isaiah has to be told. Like if you've ever put like a burning hot coal on your mouth, you go, hmm, I believe I just put fire on my face. No, I think Isaiah knew. But it's for our benefit. We're getting explanation of why this has taken place. Behold, this has touched your lips, the exact place of his confession, the exact location of his sin. This has touched your lips. Your guilt, oh man, is taken away. You didn't ask for this. You didn't request it. I am saving you. I am taking away your guilt, your stain, your shame, and your sin. I am removing it, God says, and your sin is atoned for. Simply by acknowledging his sin, God says, now you got it. And God acts, God intervenes. He takes the innocent blood of something else and applies it to Isaiah. And Isaiah is saved. So we've had the holiness of God. We've had the humility of the servant. Now we're going to transition to verse 8, the hardness of the message. The hardness of the message, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? This is not a reference to the Trinity yet. That's not been revealed by Isaiah. We know that, this side of the cross. This is just God addressing the heavenly courtroom. Who will go for us? It's not Isaiah just looking around saying, Well, I guess there's nobody else here. It's in view of what God has just done. In view of who God is. You are holy. You are mighty. I am sinful fallen humanity, but you have saved me. Can I please go? Can I please have some small part in this? I said, here I am, send me. This is not like Peter in John chapter 13. He said, oh, though all else fail you, I will never fail you. I will follow you to the end. This isn't that. This is Isaiah saying, can I please go? You're a good God. You're a great God. And you have saved the likes of me. Can I please have some small part? God says, yes. He said, go and say to this people, the hardness of the message, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah, I want you to preach the truth. I don't want you to rhyme. I don't want you to use an, a limerick or alliteration. I just want you to tell them the truth so that they will not believe. 
Because if you try to dress it up and soften it, they might turn and believe. And I don't want that. I am holy. I have pronounced judgment upon them. I am holy. I will move my godness towards sin and wickedness. I am holy. I do not want this generation to turn. I want them to be judged. Now, we have a hard time hearing that, but God is holy. He will move his godness towards sin. He is godly. God is holy. Isaiah breaks and he says, verse 11, How long, oh Lord? Maybe, maybe a sermon series? Maybe a year? Maybe, okay, maybe, maybe two, three years tops. This is a hard, hard message. God says, I want you to go and tell the truth so that they will not believe. We see this in the New Testament when Jesus himself quotes this in Matthew 13. And again, most profoundly in John chapter 8 on Temple Mount, he tells the leaders of Israel, because I tell you the truth, you will not believe. Because, not although I tell you the truth, because I'm telling you the truth, you won't believe because judgment is pronounced upon you. So Isaiah says, well, how long does this have to go? How long am I supposed to say this? And then God's going to give Isaiah the absolute worst pastor's ordination sermon ever. Like if this had been preached at my ordination, I'd have been like, mm -mm, I'm going to go cut grass. No way. I'm not doing this. How, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. Your entire life, Isaiah, will be preaching this message that they will not listen to. And the Lord removes people far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, even if there's a small remnant, it will be burned again and ravaged, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Ah, but in the midst of hopelessness, we have one tiny green flicker of hope. The holy seed is its stump. God will bring life from death a foreshadowing and a prophetic harbinger of what he will do in seven and a half centuries in the coming of Christ. So how do we deal with this holiness of God, the humility of the servant, the hardness of the message? How does this actually impact our hearts, minds, lives, beings today? I want to leave you with three very quick implications from Isaiah chapter 6. Number one goes like this. Isaiah chapter 6, first implication is, a right view of God produces a right view of sin. A right view of God produces a right view of sin. Listen, missionaries will tell you, pastors will tell you, teachers will tell you, evangelists will tell you, anybody who shares their faith will tell you that the hardest thing to get people to agree to in the 21st century is the doctrine of sin. Listen, I work downtown in a coffee shop all day. I'm talking to people with skinny jeans and deep V-neck t-shirts, okay? I deal with this stuff all the time. They're not believers. They're 21st century millennials and postmoderns. And I can tell them about the doctrine of the Trinity. And they'll go, okay, good for you. You got a God who's three in one, eternally existing, and there's one God? Awesome. Don't care. That religion holds that there's a million gods. What's the diff? Okay, yeah, but, but, but hold on. But, 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 but Jesus, he's not just a guy. He's also God. And they go, that's good. Good for you. Yay. Okay, well, that religion has prophets and they have that kind of good for you that's what you believe awesome i don't care okay but 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 the resurrection he was god he was man he lived he died he was buried he rose again good that's good for you you believe that that's in your book awesome good for you but that religion that believes that over there but when i get to the doctrine of sin that always causes them to stop hold on a second you're telling me 
that because of some bad choices I've ever made, I don't have right standing with God and I can never have right standing with God. I cannot have peace with God until I receive grace. You're telling me that I will spend eternity apart from God in eternal torment. Yep. You're telling me that I'm a bad person. I say, oh, no, no, no. I'm telling you you're a way worse person than you can ever imagine. And the pink pants aren't helping, by the way. (laughs) That your sin, even your good moral stuff, prevents you from having a right relationship with God. You cannot have eternal peace because of sin. That, my friends, always turns the conversation in a new direction. Now, here's the ironic thing. The best way to help people understand the doctrine of sin is not to beat them upside the head, neck, and face with morality and law. Adam and Eve's problem in the garden was not a lack of knowledge. They knew what they weren't supposed to do. If I tell people, don't do this, don't do that, that's the right thing, do that, all they're going to want to do is the opposite and wrong thing because that's what we do. If I tell people, here's more law, they're just going to find new and creative ways of breaking it. Don't think about a tree. Tree, 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 tree. That's what we do. But the best way for me to help someone understand the doctrine of their own sin is to show them a picture of a holy God. God does not have to show up to Isaiah and go, Isaiah, it's you. You're the problem. You're the chief culprit. You've experienced an earthquake. Now I'm going to give you a soul quake because of your sin. No, all God does is says, Isaiah, look at me. And Isaiah, looking at a holy God experiencing an earthquake, has a soul quake and says, I'm the problem. It's me. I have sin. Bingo, because you've seen a holy God. So a right view of God produces a right view of sin. Second point, regular worship produces a right view of God. (laughs) Regular worship produces a right view of God. Listen, any and all of us left to our own devices We'll have errant thinking about God. We'll begin to think something about God that is not true. We have to do this in community. All of the great grand heresies of, and of our entire history have been by some guy, usually a male, by himself with his Bible in his quiet time going, ooh, I figured this out. No one else has seen this before. And they create a great grand heresy. No, we have to do this in community. Not only that, when we come together as a church, church matters. That's where we get an accurate picture of God. I've got family members, I've got neighbors, I've got friends, and you do too, that say, I don't need to go to church. I'm a charter member of Bedside Baptist Church. I've heard all the stories. I know all about Daniel and Goliath. I know about David and the lion's den. I know about Jonah and the ark. I know all the stories. I'm going, I think you missed three out of three there. But, but I don't care about that. I want to know, what do you think about God? What is God like? And they go, well, you know, he's shiny, he's there for me, he's good, he's kind of smart. I'm like, oh, you mean the genie in Aladdin? Yeah, that's not real. I wouldn't worship that either because that's not, he's a cartoon. But if you're thinking that small about God, then I can promise you, you're also behaving just like the people in Isaiah 1 through 5, sure enough. If you tell me, oh, I know the stories, I get it, I don't need to hear anything else, then tell me about God. Do you love him? Do you revere him? Is he awesome to you? Do you think regularly and rightly about him? Because if you don't, I can just about promise your life is on its way to being a smoldering crater. But when we come together, regular worship, singing, singing, speaking to another, he is holy, 
holy, holy, he is awesome, he is mighty, that actually changes our demeanor. That changes our decision-making processes. Third point, a right view of sin produces regular worship. (laughs) I know this is circular and cyclical. It's intended to be. When I have a right picture of God, I'm aware of my sin. And when I'm aware of my sin, all I want to do is worship because God has dispatched his Savior to rescue me. Even while I was still a sinner, God sent his son to die for me. Something innocent died for the guilty. A right view of sin produces regular worship. Here I am, send me. I want to come together to be filled up, to have a right view of God. And then I want to go out into the world regardless of the outcomes. It's not up to me for people to accept. It's not up to me to put it in such a way that they go, you know what, that makes sense. I believe That's up to God. I just want to go, here I am, Lord, send me. Because God is holy, regardless of what might happen. Now, God is holy, which means he is gaudy. His holiness is his godness moving forward. You want to know how holy this God is, how gaudy his holiness is. All four campuses of Bethel, this spring semester, we finished up our sermon series through the Gospel of John. And in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, verse 41, John tells us one of the most earth-shattering pieces of news in the entirety of the New Testament. John 12, 41 tells us that the person that Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6 is actually Jesus. The one whose hem of his garment fills the whole temple, who when he speaks, the earth trembles, that's actually pre-incarnate Jesus. And the whole seraphim are saying, he is holy, holy, holy. And then Christ comes and he says, you want to know how holy I am? I will move in judgment against sin. Let me show you how serious I am. And the one who is seated on the throne in Isaiah's vision is stripped naked, beaten, shamed, scorned, and hung on a cross to become the sin of the whole world. I am holy, holy, holy. All of those pronouncements of waste and barrenness and destruction, Jesus takes that into and onto himself at the cross. He is that holy. Pronouncing judgment, he receives the death blow himself. That's the kind of God we're dealing with. He is holy, holy, holy. So holy is he that he is willing to die on the cross for the sake of the undeserving guilty. That's our Jesus. And if you don't think thus about Jesus, I encourage you to rethink your thinking. That's repentance, to rethink your thinking. If somehow you've made it into the second service of Bethel Bible Church White House campus and you're not a believer, then I invite you to believe. I don't mean that you merely give intellectual assent that Jesus existed at one point. No, no, no. I invite you to believe as if this was true, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God that your sin prevents you from having eternal peace with him, but he has already acted. That which is innocent, he, the one seated on the throne, became the flaming coal of sacrifice offered freely to you. And I invite you to believe. When I say believe, I mean stand on that square of truth as if it is the only strength in the cosmos and live your whole life as if it's true. And for the rest of you, You've been a Christian since right after Jonah got spit up by a whale. Good for you. Good. I encourage you to increasingly think rightly, to feel deeply about this God who is holy, holy, holy. To think about who this Jesus is and what he has done. And be holy just as he 
is holy. Committed, devoted, consecrated to be fully God's. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.